Hello, and thanks for joining us. Today I have as my guest, uh, Dr. Christopher Ferguson. He is a psychologist who has served as a co-chair of psychology at Stetson University in Florida and is currently a professor there. He previously served as an associate professor of psychology and criminal justice at Texas A&M International University. Uh, in 2014, Dr. Ferguson was named a fellow of the American Psychological Association or APA. He further served as president of the APA's Society for Media and Technology. And at the end of 2021, Dr. Ferguson resigned from the APA due to concerns that the organization is no longer dedicated to science and good clinical practice. Dr. Ferguson has written extensively on the effects of media, ranging from video game violence to, to the television series 13 Reasons Why to role-playing games. Dr. Ferguson is also a published author who has written both fiction and nonfiction, uh, which I'm really interested to hear more about. So Dr. Ferguson, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Yeah, um, I came across an article you wrote uh, on a couple of different websites and I thought it was really interesting and I'd like to kind of get into some of your research areas. But first, can you um, just kind of tell us where did your initial interest in psychology begin? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't like I set out like as a kid to be a psychologist, you know, I think yeah. I was like a rock star or something. Um, but uh, no, it was it was in it was in college, you know, and, and I think it was a couple combination of just synchronicity. Essentially, part of it was I had dabbled in like a, a very different major at first. I think I was a computer engineering major at first and I just okay. was very dry. So I didn't really care for it very much. Yeah. Um, and um and I probably got into psychology for the, you know, bad reason that a fair number of our majors still get into psychology, which is that I'd seen like Silence of the Lambs and, <laughs> and you know, all this kind of like slasher horror, like, you know, FBI procedural kinds of serial killer movies and TV shows. Mm -hmm. And uh, just thought it was cool, you know, uh, so I didn't really have any like lofty goal necessarily. I just kind of wanted to talk about sex and violence all the time. You know? <laughs> so compared to like you know taking a major in like French or math or something like that it seemed like a much more fun direction to go in uh so that's really I mean it's, you know no real lofty other it was the funnest major I could think of you know essentially uh at the time yeah. and uh, ended up making a career out of it so I guess it worked out all right yeah but that's kind of what got me into it and even up until graduate school I was mostly doing research on you know criminal populations so I got to kind of do some of that maybe not the the uh, chasing serial killers part of it, but at least you know studying violence and violent crime at mm -hmm. any rate. So yeah, we're pretty good. It's worked out pretty well. Did you ever consider uh, like forensic psychology or? Well, I mean, I've done some work in, but not like the exciting side of forensic psychology. Uh -huh. So I don't, I, I haven't done like profiling or anything of that <laughs> sort, you know. But I've yeah. done work in, like I said, with criminal justice populations a lot, and most of what I did was either, um, you know, doing assessments for placement in jails or other correctional facilities uh -huh. or i did a lot of um custody evaluations for parents uh, also mm -hmm. so again not like the, the the sexy part of forensic psychology <laughs> maybe but actually it was a lot of fun i really enjoyed uh -huh. it you know okay so i like doing assessments they're kind of like puzzles right you know yeah uh so that part is is really um you know for anybody thinking of going into psychology if you don't like therapy assessments are a very different mm -hmm. you know game and, and i don't really care to do therapy with people for the most part yeah. but but i really do like doing assessments because it feels much more cognitive there's a question you collect data and you come up with an answer you know yeah yeah uh, and then you're done you know you don't have to worry about what happens to the person anymore you know yeah. 
someone else's problem. But uh, so I, I always found them pretty, you know, mm. pretty interesting. And of course, you still get to see a very different side of, you know, reality and that we kind of have this vision, right, of families and mothers and fathers and sort of their role in bringing up kids. And then you see a lot of these, you know, the parents who uh, have, have lost custody of their kids <laughs> for various reasons. And you can kind of see like a very different side of parenting and, mm. uh you know, some of them are struggling for various reasons and maybe deserve a second chance and others, you know, really probably shouldn't have children for yeah. one reason or another. And, uh, you know, it just, you know, it opens your mind to the way that other people, you know, thinking of the children in these cases, you know, the lives that some of these kids are leaving, leading mm -hmm. and, and uh, what they have to grow up with and, you know, how they really are disadvantaged in some respects when they hit the real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Assessment. I've definitely come to see that it's much. If you have a research type oriented mind, you're going to gravitate toward assessment a lot more. Fits with it very nicely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And where did you um? Where did you attend grad school for psychology? Did you do PhD? Yep, I did a PhD in clinical psychology, and it was at the University of Central Florida, so right here in Orlando. So I've kind of landed back more or less where I started. Uh, actually, quite literally, because actually. Uh, you know, I'm a professor at Stetson University. That's where I got my undergraduate degree, actually. Okay. Yeah, so very, very, very much landed back <laughs> yeah. where I started. Uh, you know, so and I just love Central Florida. So it's been very nice. So it's worked mm -hmm. out pretty well for me. Cool. Yeah. And what was your uh, what was your like early career experience like? Oh, that's, you know, I had a pretty distorted, you know, path. So, you know, I, I was kind of, uh, uh, oh, I don't know what the word would for it be. I sort of wandered around, I guess, Wastrel or something like that, you know, in my 20s and stuff. So I got my undergraduate degree and then it took me a couple of years to get a master's degree in developmental psychology. Then again, you know, took a couple of years off and, and then went back to the PhD kind of in my late 20s. So I was in my probably early 30s by the time I got the actual PhD, you know, so it's kind of like the wasted decade of the 20s, basically, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, I mean, but I did, you know, did some work like in therapy and stuff. So, I, you know, either I was get, working on some degree in psychology or, or working somewhere in the field as a therapist or stuff mm -hmm. um, for, you know, ridiculously low amounts of money. Um, but, um, you know, so I guess it was all part of some sort of larger plan of, of, of whatever, although it didn't really feel like it, you know, at the time necessarily, yeah. you know, it wasn't a plan on my part. Maybe there was divine guidance or something. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, no, my, my early, you know, the early stuff, like I said, was actually mostly in sort of forensics, you know, if you will, working in jails and juvenile detention facilities and, you know, working with those populations for the most part, it was really kind of an accident that I got involved in the video game research stuff and it really was because I again I was interested in serial murder and mass homicides and stuff like that it was really you know these debates around video games and mass homicide so it really was like mass homicide was my sort of you know, door into this video game and other media stuff uh -huh. uh, if it hadn't been for people you know probably you know 20 some years ago linking video game violence to mass homicides and other acts of serious violence and i probably never would have gotten interested much in media effects research mm -hmm. you know so that was kind of the again serendipity or synchronicity or whatever just you know lucky accident uh, mm -hmm. wasn't a plan um by any means and uh, that's kind of how it worked out so my, my interest in general is kind of like people make these grandiose claims about things and it must be a, some sort of flaw in my personality, but the more sure someone seems to be about something, the less I believe them to some, uh -huh. to some extent. I actually am more comfortable with amb ambiguity than mm -hmm. I am with certainty. Uh -huh. uh, so when people say something is absolutely true, then 
their credibility in my eyes goes down, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and I get real curious about whether there is evidence, you know, or, or what the actual evidence is to, you know, so support that. Uh -huh. uh, so I don't know, it, you know, it makes it really difficult for me to get with the program, unfortunately, but, uh, <laughs> but it's resulted in a lot of sort of fun research directions for me. Yeah, no, that I can see very much how that that personality style fits in with research. Like, it reminds me of a few different things. Like I when I came into this program and I first started learning about therapy, I thought like, no, you should be sure. Like Freud was sure of his theory or this per Adler was sure of his theory. And then you read someone like Jung and he's like, well, Freud can be right and Adler can be right and they can both be wrong in certain aspects. Mm -hmm. And but yeah, that's kind of what it sounds like. It's like, mm, yeah. you're probably missing something. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the reality is, is most people with advanced degrees are just as conformist as everybody else. Is, you know? so it's not really necessarily a link between, you know, sort of a PhD in the research field and, uh -huh. uh, you know, being a gadfly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's even studies that kind of show this. I mean, you know, if you look at like um, science beliefs, right, you know, so you see everybody with these signs on their front lawns now in this house, we believe in science. And those signs are absolute bullshit because uh -huh. people that, you know, that's only true. And so first off, that's not how science works. It's not like, you know, the Bible, like you just get here's science and you just need to believe in this thing, you know. Uh -huh. Uh, but also usually those folks, you know, are really thinking of things where the science fits their worldview. And as soon as you present them with something that's in, that doesn't, you know, present mm. fit this, and usually it's sort of like the left that had these, these signs up because they're trying to troll the right. <laughs> you know, so if it's sort of, you know, something unfriendly to the, you know, the less worldview, um, then actual, actual studies show that people on the left just are, are just as confirmation bias likely. Mm you know, conformists, you know, they, they, they are angry at science that, just, that, that it does not support leftist worldviews just as much as right wing people are angry at science that doesn't support right wing views. And occasionally they align, you know, so sometimes you see like the far left and far right will align on things like video games, sometimes, <laughs> you know, or pornography or whatever, mm. where they're both upset <laughs> by science for different uh -huh. reasons. But yeah, um, so I, mean, I, I think I wanted off your question. I don't remember what your question was. At this no, point. that's fine. Yeah. So you got into research in video games and violence because you were interested more in the violence and people were saying for sure video games, like especially violent video games are going to have you're going to lead. It's going to lead to violence. Yeah. So that was you know, a very common um, assertion, certainly. 25, you know, really the beginning in somewhere in the early 90s. Or, you know, mm. Well, I mean, you can find actual examples of it, even going back to the 80s. You know, people were talking about like Pac-Man and the asteroids is called wow. stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like a new thing, but mm. you know, really I think kind of hit a fever pitch, you know, in the 90s, and then particularly with the Columbine massacre in 1999, you know, uh -huh. that really kind of solidified this view in the public imagination. It was very bipartisan at the time, you know, that both Democrats and Republicans kind of viewed this as a thing. And, uh, you know, but it was clearly a moral panic, you know, that, you know, we see these like, you know, repetitive cycles and, and it still gets dragged out of case. And I've seen some stuff, it's mostly been like on Twitter, but, you know, so it doesn't hit like the peaks that it used to anymore. But after mm -hmm. there's just a shooting this weekend in Buffalo yeah. and, you know, some people, and it seemed to be more on the left this time for some reason, we're talking about, you know, we need to talk about gamer culture or whatever, mm -hmm. but there's, there's no evidence that gamers are particularly, you know, prone to, you know, obviously like any community, there's some bad apples, you know, whatever, uh -huh. but there's no evidence that gamer communities are more alt-right or racist or anything else, any more mm -hmm. than any community is. I mean, you can find 
toxicity online and you know like literally among young adult authors or you know about about knitting communities i'm actually <laughs> using real examples i'm not making this stuff up but you wow. articles about you know google toxicity and online knitting communities and you find all kinds of crazy <laughs> like knitting <laughs> yeah. why, why are people even interested let alone you know having these polarized arguments about stuff but you know people are jerks you know and you can find jerks in any community and what what happens is if you already kind of don't like this group then you just look for some example of a person that you know you know they go oh we need to talk about games or whatever we don't even know this guy played games i mean i imagine uh -huh. he probably did but you know but that's just you know that's because he's young male and like 90 percent you know young males play you know <laughs> games at least occasionally so yeah. um yeah it's just people use these cases to support a narrative yeah they really want to talk about this thing and they'll try to look for these like extreme examples to try to get people uh -huh. to talk about that thing usually backfires but you know people still think it works for some reason yeah not even long not too long ago i was reading up on the columbine shooting and i think i just read the wikipedia page on it hmm. and it mentioned that it explicitly mentioned like they were both into playing doom at the time yeah. was looking and yeah, it's like they they didn't explicitly say that that was found to be a correlation, but they did talk about it, you know, like, yeah, well, you can find cases, yeah, so we get this like confirmation bias, right, you know, some uh -huh. people like if they if you think that video games cause violent crime, then you look for cases where the actual shooters were video gamers, like in uh -huh. like in the Columbine, you know, massacre, then you ignore cases of like older males or sometimes occasionally women who are mass homicide perpetrators who don't uh -huh. fit the gamer profile. So it's like, right, you know, yeah. 2010, Amy Bishop was a 42-year-old biology professor who shot up her biology department because she didn't get tenure, right? You know, mm. nobody thinks video games, you know, nobody, uh -huh. but nobody talks about video games. So people just uh -huh. kind of forget that case, right? You know, yeah. so same thing, like the Sandy Hook shooter in 2012, turned out he mostly played Dance Dance Revolution, right? You know, <laughs> so not usually most people's idea of a violent video game. Yeah. Uh, but these cases, you know, if you kind of like just pick, you know, individual cases and say, haha, this mass homicide perpetrator played video games, mm -hmm. or this one was a racist, or this one was a misogynist, and you kind of try to make mass homicides about your issue. Yeah. What you're doing is you're ignoring all the other cases that don't fit that narrative, you know, and you're kind of trying to create a correlation in people's minds where there really isn't even a correlation. So mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's the unfortunate thing about like mass homicide is people tend to it's very politicized, right? So yeah, obviously for gun control is one thing. So everybody wants to make it, you know, about gun control, yeah. uh, which at least has some sort of, con, you know, consistent sense to it, you know, because guns are involved in not all, but the majority of, of these cases in the United States. Um, but, you know, then, you know, like I said, you get, you know, the, the, like the guy this weekend was, you know, an avowed racist. So people are going to make, well, this is about like racial extremism. Uh -huh. You get another case where a guy will target women. So that one's about misogyny, you know, uh -huh. and, and something else. You know, there was a um, African-American gentleman who ran over a bunch of, you know, what older white ladies. But then, but that doesn't fit the narrative, you know, so people yeah. don't talk about like racism, you know, in that sort of situation. So, you know, you kind of get this sort of like, you know, selectivity people are picking upon these idiosyncratic elements of these different cases uh -huh. um and ignoring the commonality which usually is these are antisocial you know psychopaths mm -hmm. you know for mm -hmm. one thing and there are these injustice collectors they tend to ruminate on you know their problems um but they also tend to be chronically mentally ill you know mm -hmm. in most of these situations either suicidally depressed or or, or have psychosis of one sort or another mm -hmm. and for some reason people downplay that you know if anything you know uh 
or at least at, you know, advocates for the mentally ill downplay that. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, that's unfortunate because those are really the actual commonalities between all of these individuals, whether the male, female, black, white, you know, Latino, uh, old, young, and so on and so forth, are these three things, you know, they're angry, they think about their how people screw them over a lot, and then they tend to be mentally ill, you know, mm-hmm. and if you kind of focus on those commonalities, uh, you may have some insights into how to actually fix this, but people want to make it about their political issue, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, it, I listened to some, some, I, I vary back and forth, but I listened to some right-wing uh, political commentators <laughs> and it was about a month ago, I think the subway shooter in New York, uh-huh. um, he was an African-American gentleman and yeah. they said that they found out he was also like racially motivated. Uh-huh. Um, but no one talks about that because like you said, it doesn't fit the narrative. Right. Um, and then it makes me think of, oh, when you said people downplay the mental health aspect, I'm pretty sure that gentleman had some mental health issues too. But I, I wonder how much of that is um, psychologists or our community trying to like normalize mental health issues. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it is. I mean, there are good intentions there, right? But as they say, like the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh. <laughs> so, I mean, the good intention, I actually agree with the, with the intent is to try to, you know, we don't want people to stigmatize the mentally ill so that they're not abused, mistreated or neglected um, or things like that. And that is a legitimate issue. There's no question <laughs> about that as a legitimate issue. On the other hand, you can't lie to people <laughs> in, in, in advance of that. So, so the reality is, is, you know, is that certain types of mental illness. Now, mental illness is very broad. So, you know, we're not talking about like spider phobia here, you know, so, but if you're looking at like psychosis and certain other forms of mental illness that, you know, links between things like psychosis and violent crime, it it elevates any individual's risk by about three to five times, you know, so the chronically mentally ill are much more likely to engage in assaults. Um, than are non-chronically mentally ill. Now, now the vast majority of the chronically mentally ill don't commit, you know, violent crimes. But mm-hmm. if you look at like the general population, it's something like you know three, four, five percent, you know, commit violent crimes. If you look at psychotic individuals, it's like fifteen, you know, percent or so. You know, maybe a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so again, we don't want to assume that everybody who has a psychotic illness is going to be a violent criminal. Most are not. Uh-huh. Um, but there is an elevated risk, you know, that is important to acknowledge as well. So I think for some reason that people get into this mindset that you have to say things that aren't, or may, I don't know that people know that they're not true in most cases, but, you know, but somehow there's been this distorting effect, you know, that has percolated down and people repeat these things over and over, even though the empirical evidence mm-hmm. is not in support of them. So, of course, we know the people on the right do this, you know, yeah. whether it's global warming or, um, I don't know, vaccines, I guess, are now a thing on the right. I, but, you know, I don't I actually don't. I'm not in a lot of right leaning spaces, to be honest. I'm in academia and uh, tend to be uh, I, I call myself an Obama progressive. Um, you know, so I don't watch a lot of Tucker Carlson. <laughs> I don't know what he's. Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah. Anyway, we won't talk about Tucker. Um, but but you do see these things in left leaning spaces too. But it, but it's harder for people on the left to see it. You know, they can see it when they catch a clip of Tucker Carlson. They go, oh my god, this guy's crazy. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, you know. But when they hear things on the left, like you know, the mentally ill are no more likely to be violent, or things like gender is a social construct, or whatever things like uh-huh. that that are not empirically supported. Mm-hmm. Um, that they just keep saying it, you know, and it, and it picks up the sort of truthiness, you know, mm-hmm. to it. Um, one of the ones I'm seeing is, you know, 
student evaluation time is out. And of course, you know, in, in faculty dialogue, you'll hear people say, you know, everybody knows that student evaluations are biased against women and racial minorities. The evidence actually is not good to suggest that student evaluation. I mean, this, it's inconsistent. I mean, there's some studies trying to affect some studies don't. And that's fair to debate. But this idea that you sort of flatten all that uncertainty in a research field and just sort of say, everybody knows. It's like the Dothraki, right, on like Game of Thrones. <laughs> it is known that, you know. Um, and like I said, it's fascinating. I think it's, I'm fascinated by it more by, because I think I've, I think I was naive to it maybe 10 years ago and, mm. and, and not really seeing that for the most part. And now in the last particularly five years, perhaps being like, wow, like the left is actually just as, is, you know, purposely delusional sometimes as the right, you know, mm. uh -huh. around some of the, and like I said, these yard signs about science don't impress me anymore. because <laughs> People on the left just ignore science when it suits their purposes. So, yeah. Yeah. What is uh what is the APA stance on video games and violence? <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about. That's like, APA is the worst. <laughs> I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of uh yeah. So they still have a a policy statement. I mean, I think if, if I'm you know steel manning it as much as possible, I think their stance would be something effective. Uh, their perception is that there are is consistent evidence. Again, I'm not saying I agree with this, but mm -hmm. their their stance is that there is consistent evidence linking video game violence to a, like aggressive behavior, which they don't really define what they mean by that, mm -hmm. um, but not to violent crime. You know, so I think they've clarified that violent crime isn't in the picture anymore. But there some some sort of nebulous aggressive behavior. Um, there is some sort of impact, you know, mm -hmm. for so that is that is their their stance. Um, <clears throat> It's a very controversial stance, you know, because a lot of scholars still think that's incorrect, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as, as we've had more and more studies. They're, they're right about the violent crime part, you know, I think, you know, fine, and it's good because they really left it pretty murky, you know, in terms of what their perspective was up until really 2021, I think it was, that they oh. clarified finally about the violent crime. Um, but, um, but, you know, First off, they never say what they mean by aggressive behavior, We're really talking about like putting someone's hand in a bucket of ice water. It's not, you know, uh, you know, so they don't tell the public what we mean by this, you know, but also even the experimental studies, the evidence is inconsistent. So, again, I think there's a lot of concern that they are misrepresenting a, a research field that increasingly is pointing away from video games having an impact, even on these milder behaviors like prank level april fool's day aggression oh. that's really what we're talking about but mm -hmm. even doesn't appear you know with newer better quality what we call pre-registered studies we really just aren't seeing these effects even from mild aggression mm -hmm. um so you know i don't know that you know it's like anything else like if you if you're beating a drum about video games and the apa stance is, is gold as long as you don't try to apply it to violent crime um but you know other than that, I don't think anybody takes it terribly seriously. You know, certainly I don't think scholars in the field don't even refer to it terribly often. And if they do, oftentimes it's to, you know, you know, point out that its stance is not consistent with everybody in the field. So they don't represent a consensus statement hmm. uh, that most or many scholars would agree with. Yeah, I think I saw you, you mentioned, I think you and 200 plus other scholars wrote a open letter to the apa asking them to change the 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a good example in the in the futility of open letters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So about 230 roundabout scholars wrote to the APA. This is going way back when they were putting together this most recent statement. So like 2012, 2013. Um, basically asking the APA just to stop doing these statements because they tend to be so misleading and, uh -huh. and do more harm than anything else, really. Um, at least in terms of like you know, ruining the reputation of our because most people kind of know that video games don't you know do this stuff anymore. But you know, uh, so this looks kind of wacky. You know, it looks like a bunch of old people. You know, now I'm now I'm straw manning. I was steel manning. Now I'm straw manning. Look, but it does look kind of wacky. You know, that yeah. they have a bunch of old people waving their cane at kids. You know, which I I'm getting old enough at this point to start doing myself. Uh -huh. um, you know, so uh, it I don't I don't think it, this statement has been good for our field. I don't think it's been good to the APA. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, it's it's one of many statements I think the APA has been involved in that you could probably say the same thing about, you know. Hmm. So, so I think in general, people should be a little bit wary of, of you know, sort of position statements by these big si science groups. They're not really science groups, they're professional guilds anyway, but, you know. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, when when would you say that the APA, in your opinion, um no longer speak no longer was practicing good scientific <laughs> practice. i'm not sure they ever did okay <laughs> I, don't, I don't know so there's a, there's a history that goes back so there, there's this guy um uh i'm gonna mangle his name some terrible names but i think william uh donahue who has this article from the 90s pointing out problems with apa policy mm. statements and you know the basic argument he has is even these statements. So basically, as long as I've been like literally alive, so going back to the '70s, you know that there are these highly politicized, you know, APA statements that you know essentially by happy coinky dink they do one of two things: they either support, well, you know, back in the '70s would have been considered liberal causes, now it'd be considered uh -huh. progressive, um, and or two tend to make psychology look better than it is. You know, mm -hmm. so in other words, you know, we have the answer on this issue, you know, rather than saying our field is murky and nobody can agree, which is really <laughs> what the truth is on those things, right? You know, um, because that doesn't make us look good, you know, saying we have discovered, you know, this thing, it is an absolute truth looks a lot better, you know, mm -hmm. so, um, so I think that has been a general trend as long as the APA has, I think there's just something corrupting about policy statements in general. So, so I think that they started really kind of producing them in the seventies, maybe late sixties, but you know, seventies for sure. And they've never been good. You know, mm -hmm. so they 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 kind of, generally speaking, have this sort of problem of of both the political bias and also sort of like over advertising psychology. Which, if you think about, it's a professional guild, so that's what you would expect. Is they're uh -huh. trying to make psychology look good, you know. So that is going to be the bias they have is to try to overemphasize the degree to which psychology has the answer to these sort of pressing, um, you know, social questions and. Uh, so I think it was always bad. I mean, like like everything else, it got worse during the Trump administration, you know. And I get it. I mean, I, I obviously was not a fan of Trump, but uh, but I mean, I, I I tell the joke sometimes. Like, so they would release like everything he would say. They would release some letter, you know. Mm -hmm. It was just like a letter from the president of the APA for that year, just opposing whatever. That, that the President Trump couldn't fart without the APA <laughs> a letter opposing it, you know, kind of stuff. It really just got. You know, like, you know, it, it, yeah, I get it. You know, this is his, his was a very polarizing administration. And I certainly disagreed with, I probably, I probably substantially agree with most of the letters, but, 
uh, for my own personal politics, but you know, obviously you water down your brand every time you really, you know, if you are a scientific body and you want people to take you seriously, it behooves mm-hmm. you, in my opinion, to say as little as possible so that when you do say something, you know, it really has a lot of weight to it. You know, uh-huh. if you're kind of coming out and saying that the Trump administration is like the Nazis or something like that, you know, which for all of its flaws, it was not the Nazis, you know, <laughs> uh, then you kind of seem partisan first off, but also just kind of ridiculous, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, you know, even if, like I said, substantially, I probably agreed with most of the positions that the APA had taken in those letters. It just was like a clown show in the sense of like, it just comes across as so fragile and so politicized. And uh, like I said, I think it just waters down the mm-hmm. brand of psychology and certainly communicates to conservatives that were like not conservatives, you know, which is true, uh-huh. you know, um, but also, you know, it's a great way of getting half the country not to listen to anything that we say, you know, uh-huh. so somehow we have to restore some sense of, you know, um, objectivity, at least, if not neutrality, we don't have neutrality at all, but, you know, we, should, we can at least try to be objective, <laughs> but we have <laughs> done that very successfully. Did you, did you say something um, about attempting to change the APA from within? What was that? <laughs> it's like, oh, so just like, just like an open letter, right? <laughs> it's a <laughs> endeavor, right? You know? uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, it's like, you know, what's the mantra we say in, in psychology? The, the patient first has to want to change, you know, kind uh-huh. of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, my, my goal had been at one point. So I, I'm not really a big joiner. I guess it's probably, a, you know, not a surprise, you know. <laughs> Um, so I'm not really that enthused about joining organizations and being on committees and this sort of stuff for the most part, but I, I did kind of think this was important mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I became an APA member, as you mentioned, I ended up being a fellow in 2014. Um, I sat on their council of representatives for three years, which is kind of like, if you think of like us politics, it's sort of like the house of representatives, if you will, for, uh, you know, so oh, it's sort of a policy setting body, you know, for the, the organization made up of unpaid members, you know, we get voted in for three year terms and this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I was president of the media psychology division too. So I kind of got involved you know, in various ways, which a lot of, yeah, I got, I got to see how like the sausage is made to use that cliche, um, a little bit, you know, which didn't help my perception of the APA. Um, but because it's not made very, it's just like, just like the hot dog. You don't really want to know like the process that goes into making that thing, you know, uh-huh. uh, it's, it's much more palatable when you just imagine that these things grow on trees or, <laughs> or that like, there's really like a part of the body of a pig that looks like that or, you know, yeah. um, you know, so certainly it, it, you know, seeing how things work on the inside, you know, probably if anything added to my, my concern about how the APA works. But um, yeah, I mean, that was my goal was to try to like bring data, bring a different perspective. And um, yeah, I mean, and I don't want to like overplay it. I mean, there, there definitely were good people, you know, in uh, particularly on the council and, you know, but most of them were just rank and file psychologists, you know, and, um, you know, really the way to think of it is like the APA, even though it's, technically a nonprofit organization is otherwise structurally no different than a big business, you know, like uh-huh. Apple or something like that, you know, and, um, you know, and it's just like going into Apple and say, you know, well, maybe we shouldn't make our parts in Western China where they're committing a genocide, you know, uh, you know, and it seems kind of obvious, but nobody does anything. Uh-huh. <laughs> they still make the damn thing, you know, in uh-huh. Western and uh, through slave labor, right? You know, or Nike or any of these companies that, 
you know, throw up Black Lives Matter squares on their Instagram, but then, you know, compete, you know, profit off of slave labor in, in Asia mm. or other parts of the world um, with no apologies whatsoever, you know, <laughs> Disney, you know, filming a movie, <laughs> you know, near the concentration camps, you know, Mulan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It, you know, so it was kind of like that. It's sort of like, you know, the public, what people say in public and, and sort of, you know, their incentives for why they do things, you know, as they run things are, are very different. So, and that was really, you know, I guess what disheartened me about a lot of those interactions is really the data don't matter. It's really about what political positions hmm. are most beneficial for the organization, you know, either in terms of like, you know, it's like any other mob, basically placating the members, you know, uh, and as those members increasingly become further and further left, um, then just sort of mirroring the opinions of the of the of the mob, if you will, um, while also promoting things that are profitable you know, to the, the board of directors, you know, the people that are sort of running the real inside machine, you know, so there's the council representatives who are just sort of, you know, random psychologists who get voted in, they're not paid, but there also are full-time employees, you know, who uh, have fiefdoms, you know, they're directors of this and, you know, uh, whatever, you know, a CEO, COO, so otherwise it's very much set up like a uh, you know, corporate structure. I think the CEO makes something. I had I had it in my in an essay I'd written. Oh. I don't remember the exact number, but it's certainly at the upper range of hundreds of thousands. I might like 800, 000, oh. I apologize if I'm getting the exact number yeah. wrong, but um, but it's like a, a lot of money, <laughs> a lot more money than I <laughs> absolutely make. So obviously they're going to do the things that you know bring in more money. And you know, as an example, I'll, I'll say like in 2020. And I actually found this out. They, um, like a lot of organizations, you know, were experiencing financial difficulties because of the pandemic and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they laid off dozens of low-ranked employees, you know, to save money. And in the same year, they gave all the high-ranked, you know, the, the directors of this and CEOs raises <laughs> the same year. You know, so, so you know, this is an organization that portrays itself as committed to social justice, uh -huh. laying off its low-ranking employees and giving raises to its high-ranking employees that's wow. like the worst excesses of capitalism that people <laughs> that, you know who are legitimately socialists always complain about right you know uh -huh. it's just, you know anyway so <laughs> that's an example of this how garbage <laughs> anyway it was it was not a, a, a satisfying experience you know so i i, I will admit i failed i absolutely <laughs> failed <laughs> And maybe, maybe there was a more strategic way. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe, you know, I didn't have the, the I didn't put the sugar on the medicine as, as well as I should have, you know, so I'll, yeah. I'll say I'll opt, you know, cop to my own, you know, personal weaknesses in that, but certainly was not successful in turning the aircraft carrier around in this situation. I was going to ask, I guess, since you, you mentioned earlier, you, you don't really uh, do much therapy. I was going to ask if, because the APA, you have to get licensed with them and you're to be like a licensed clinical psychologist who practices therapy, you're licensed by the APA. I've been wondering with a lot of the political stances and people who have qualms with the APA, um, how many people are gonna end up practicing without a license, but not, you know, like legally, yeah. but letting their license go. Yeah. Well, um, the, the, the good news is actually in the United States, we're licensed by the state, you know, so we're not licensed by the APA. They're, they're private, you know, they're oh. APA, even though, they, even though they have American in the title, they're a private 
nonprofit. They have nothing to do with the government. Uh, now, there, that, now that makes us like, oh, well, you don't have to do, worry about them. No, you do have to worry about them. So, so there's kind of like this like interaction between the state governments and the APA. So um, you typically have to like um, graduate from a program that's APA accredited. Um, mm -hmm. And every two years, you have to get CE, you know, continuing education credits, basically. Uh -huh. uh, I was going to give you the the, the, <laughs> the abbreviation. I wouldn't mean anything. Uh, you know, uh, so, and, and a lot, you know, of course, a lot of those are APA accredited programs. They don't have to be. So the state can also credit certain things that are not necessarily APA accredited. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, but yeah, I mean, you don't have to be an APA member. Uh, in fact, most psychologists are not APA members, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in order to practice, um, you know, what I, I think you're kind of getting at, like, retaliate, what could the APA do to retaliate, you know, against someone who is, I don't think too much, necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that, you know, to, to their credit, I don't know that I've gotten the vibe that they're terribly interested in retaliation, you know, so, uh -huh. um, I, you know, there have been a number of psychologists who have deeply criticized the APA. I think, you know, for good reasons, you know, increasingly I'm joining their ranks, although, you know, for different reasons, maybe than some of the others have, have criticized them. And, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I mean, I have heard some stories of retaliation, but it tends to be like shaming and reputational kinds of stuff. Um, I don't think that I know of any cases where the APA has gone after someone's license, you know, or something huh. of that sort. You know, so they'll say stuff publicly, hmm. you know, like this person's a lunatic or, or whatever. <laughs> so it's dismissive, you know, reputational smearing types of stuff. Um, but I don't I don't know that they've tried to, like, make it difficult for someone to practice. You know, hmm. the, the 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 reality is they the AP themselves have really limited enforcement tools so they can only discipline APA members, you know, and the, the main discipline is to you know, make you lose your membership, you know, uh, so <laughs> that's it, you know, uh, so it's not much that you really could, you know, so if you're not an APM member, I'm not an APM member anymore, so there's not really much they could do, I mean, I suppose if they really were, you know, upset at something I was doing, they could file, you know, a complaint with the state licensure board or something of that sort, and uh, maybe because it's APA that would carry more weight, uh, or whatever, but I, you know, to their credit, you know, I, I yeah. don't want to accuse them of something they haven't done. They've done plenty of rubbish things, but uh -huh. I have not seen them be terribly retributive, you know, about criticism. Now, and now that I've said that, I'm going to get emails from psychologists who, who are like, "No, here's what they did to me." You know, and, I, <laughs> and I do know of a couple cases, like I said, that yes, they have reputationally shamed a few people mm -hmm. over the years. Um, but I don't think they've gone after anybody's licenses that I've or sued them or like it's not like Scientology. They don't have like PIs falling <laughs> around or, or, or yeah. that stuff. So, you know, to their credit, uh, they haven't done too much of that. But no, you can you don't have to be an APA member. You can largely ignore the APA. I probably will never give them a dime again. You know, uh -huh. for any purpose because even with like the C the CU credits, the continuing education, um, that you can you can get providers that are non APA um, just as long as the state you know, certifies them, then that's, that's fine. Huh. Um, so it's not that difficult to do. So yeah, you, you, you basically have to deal with the state, you know, okay. um, uh, not, not the APA directly, you know, yeah. but of course, a lot of things that the state has are influenced by the APA. So like you think yeah. like ethics codes, right? You know, every state has its ethics codes. They may vary a little bit from state to state, but largely they're based on the APA's ethics codes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I was, I was under the impression that although I was aware you had to get licensed by the state, I was under the impression that it was through the APA. 
kind of. No, but but the the graduate programs are uh, what is it? Uh, what's the word for it? You know, basically certified, but it's not it's not it accredited. There we yeah, go. Yeah. Accredited by the API. You know, so um, if you go to a graduate program that's not API accredited, you're kind of screwed. There may be some yeah. way that you can work around it, but you know, certainly gonna be a lot more difficult. Then yeah. if you just go an APA credit program, but now that I've done that, you know, so I don't have to worry about it anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Um, what are some other? So I mentioned in your bio you study violence in video games. You have written some about Thirteen Reasons Why the television series. Yeah. Um, what are some other? Yeah. What are what has been kind of a very interesting area of research that you've been a part in that you maybe favor or that you find most intriguing? Yeah, I mean, I was I love the video game stuff. I did it for 20 years. I mean, at this point, I don't know that there's a lot more to do, um, you know, in that area. We're doing a study now looking at sort of like racial representation in games and if that <laughs> impacts aggression towards people of different, you know, right, yeah, basically same same uh, stew by a different name, I guess, kind of thing. They're basically still video game violent studies, but just sort of throwing a racial, you know, component um, <laughs> into that. Basically, the, you know, do video games make people racist? The answer is probably no, but you know, but it's interesting to see empirically, um, one way or the other. I may eat my words if it's <laughs> finally getting a statistically significant result on one of these things. I don't know, but in general, I mean, it's, I've been interested in these kind of like moral panics and and um, you know, in media. So most of these things tend not to work out, mm. you know, for the most part. Uh, I've been getting involved in some of the as that's why I've alluded to it a couple times. I, I now have sort of a new paradigm looking at sort of like concerns about like race and policing and violent crime and that sort of stuff too mm. and uh, and once again that seems to be an area where people's perception isn't matched by reality to some extent and again this there's a, a wide range between being like the star trek racial utopia versus 1955 jim crow right you know yeah. so you don't have to believe everything's like 100 percent beautiful you know, to think that things are much better than they were during the Jim Crow era. era. Um, but it looks like for the most part, people, again, primarily on the left in this case, uh, are exaggerating at very least the sort of like systemic elements of, of racism, you know. So we tend, some of the studies we've been doing tends to find that like things like mental health or class issues tend to mm. act police misconduct much more than does race you know mm. for instance uh, or that we're doing a meta-analysis now of the sentencing disparities and that for the most part um the u.s justice system is actually is pretty egalitarian there are you know for like violent crime or property crime uh, there don't appear to be any racial disparities in sentencing uh, for drug crimes, they're a little bit, you know, but they're very small, much smaller than most. Like we're talking about, like, you know, impacting maybe somewhere between like one to four percent of the variance of people sentencing or something like okay. that. So relatively small, but they're there, you know. So which makes an argument maybe we ought to reconsider like the war on drugs or something. Like, yeah. So there, there probably are some reasonable um, things we should change there. But again, I think when people hear about like racial disparities in sentencing, they're thinking it's all crimes and that they're massive, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, the white dude is getting probation where the black or Latino dude is getting 10 years. And it's not the, it's something like, you know, if it was a 10 year sentence, we're talking about maybe like, you know, 
10 to 30 days difference between the white and the black defendant or the white mm-hmm. and the Latino defendant, you know, Asian defendants actually come out better. Yeah. It's not much, you know, but they actually get slightly smaller sentences um, than uh, anybody else. Uh, so, you know, uh, so which also doesn't quite fit the narrative about sort of white supremacy and that kind of, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. But, but anyway, so I think the stuff is interesting, you know, both. And I think, you know, I, I actually kind of like these messy pictures, you know, where, mm-hmm. Because I think that sounds more true if you kind of say, like, for the most part, the U.S. system actually is much more egalitarian than people assume. But there may be a few little areas here that mm-hmm. still need a bit of tweaking. I think that well, that, seems, that seems pretty fair to me. And it's data-based, right? uh-huh. you know, so that I think is is important. So that's, that's sort of the new stuff that we're, we're working on. Of course, the, the the more politically correct side of it also is we kind of look at, like, the commission of violent crime, right? You know, so if you kind of look at that, you know, um, you know, certain racial minorities are overrepresented in the perpetration of violent crime, including the murder of police officers, right? You know, mm-hmm. and that tends to mirror, if you look at like police shootings, you know, that obviously there are disparities in police shootings uh, where, you know, black and to a lesser extent, Latino uh, men are shot more often by police officers. So those numbers kind of mirror each other, right? So there's an overrepresentation in the commission of violent crime and there's this overrepresentation in terms of being shot by police. Mm-hmm. And obviously, these are related. I mean, this shouldn't be, but that's you know very controversial for me to say because you know people yeah. lose their minds. But 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 actually, is obviously these things are somehow coordinating with each other. And um, so you know, if you say, as we have shown in some of our, our work, that well, it's not really so much race that's actually, even though there's these sort of numbers and disparities. When you boil it down, it's really not race, but class mm-hmm. and mental health. So a low SES, you know, mentally ill white guy gets treated by the police more or less the same way as a low SES, mentally ill black guy. Mm. You know? um, but the reality is, it's these class issues that are resulting in police misconduct. The, the good news for the sort of the progressive narrative is that's true for violent crime perpetration as well. So if we kind of say, well, you know, you know, lower income black or Latino guys, you know, are overrepresented as perpetrators of crime. It has nothing to do with race. Um, uh, it has to do with their social circumstances, their 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 neighborhood environment, and again, things like mental health and and uh, and everything else. So once again, that low ed SES mentally ill white dude is just as likely to commit a violent crime as is that you know low SES man. You know, so that's the politically correct side of it. Uh-huh. You, you know, so it takes away the racist argument that, that certain races are more or less prone to, to violent crime. That's not true at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it is really, you know, the individuals who are in difficult social circumstances are both more likely to be exposed to police misconduct. And probably the reason they're being exposed to police misconduct is because the cops are scared you know, because uh-huh. they're more likely to engage in, you know, which doesn't mean that the cops are doing the right thing, by the way, you know, so it really suggests that if we're kind of like thinking of policy, right, Um, if you focus in on race, you end up with this sort of thing that divides, right, you know, we're Mm going to give a bunch of stuff to this group, because we like them, we're going to ignore these people, because they vote for Trump, Mm -hmm. right, you know, Um, on the other hand, if you focus in on class, it lifts everybody up and doesn't leave anybody behind, right? You know, maybe this group over here is going to have get more of those benefits because they ex- were experiencing more of the, dis- you know, the the disparities or whatever. But you're not leaving this group over here out who are going to now become resentful because nobody's interested in them, right? You know, so uh, it's just a different way of framing policy and how to fix this. Yeah. 
maybe, you know, there, and I actually do be very clear, I advocate for certain changes to the criminal justice system. You know, I think there are, I think we have very draconian punishments for particularly drug crimes and stuff like that. Um, so I would love to see some, some reform of the CJ system, but you have to figure out how to do it strategically, right? And if you divide people, it makes it harder uh, to move your policy forward, as we've seen over the last two years, right? We've made no progress whatsoever <laughs> on, on criminal justice reform, uh, even though there was this initial burst of, you know, most people after the George Floyd murder uh, supported it, you know, and there was an opportunity there, even if we kind of say, well, maybe George Floyd was was killed because he was mentally ill or, you know, lower socioeconomic status, not necessarily because he was black, uh -huh. um, who cares, right? You know, if that still moves us in the direction of sort of, you know, fixing some of these problems with police training, with, you know, how, you know, police profile low-income neighborhoods, you know, whatever, the war on drugs, whatever it is that we want to look at, mm -hmm. um, how do you get everybody in the rowboat together moving forward, you know, um, versus how do you divide people and make everybody angry and mm -hmm. you end up with like Twitter, you know, kind of <laughs> stuff, then uh, we've got down the second road, right? And People get so married to their ideological, moral narratives that they can't see beyond them. And if you sort of raise any objection to them, then you're become a fascist or a communist or a racist or, you know, all the other bad words that we now call everybody the drop of a hat, you know, and it really actually shuts down any progress, which is exactly what we've seen over the last two years. You know, I'm not happy that we haven't made, you know, we have an embarrassing number of incarcerated individuals. We have the highest rate of incarceration. Um, in, in the developed world, it might be anywhere. <laughs> I, I can't remember actually, uh, uh -huh. but certainly in the developed world, certainly even compared to places like, I think like China maybe, you know, comes close to us or something, but uh, it's really an embarrassment. A lot of that is due to just these, you know, um, it's, it's sort of not that easy to get into contact with the criminal justice, but once you do, the punishments are draconian. Mm. So the three strikes and you're out, all this kind of stuff, you know, um, mandatory minimum sentencing, you know, all that sort of stuff makes it really, once you're in, you're in for good, you know, kind of a thing, or it's very yeah. good back out again. And that's something we need to fix. Yeah. We were just, we, I'm taking a forensics class this summer and we were just talking about, for instance, with drugs that it showed like data shows that when people get out of prison, they go back to using drugs again. Like prison doesn't rehabilitate them. Yeah. And then, so they go back to using and then they get put back in prison and it's just a cycle. And it's just, and then they, they have this thing called drug court. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've, yeah. yeah. So there's a, yeah, a lot of just, a lot of different areas that could be improved upon. Yeah, well, it, what happened is too is, it, you know, it was kind of this, uh, I know we're, we've sort of straight into criminal justice talk and that's, that's okay because I that overlaps with a lot of stuff I do. Um, there was this kind of movement in the late 90s and into the early 2000s that really was emphasizing a lot more of that sort of mental health court, drug court, uh, training police officers to deal with crisis interventions so they didn't shoot everybody. You know, um, you know, there really, there really was this kind of like movement in the direction of trying to like, you know, community policing, things like that, where the, the beat cops would get out there and actually talk to people in the community. So they were part of the community. There were really a lot of really good initiatives. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. You know, and then that really just transformed everybody's mind into every every cop needs to be ready for a nuclear weapon to go off in every city. So every, every police department has to have an armored personnel carrier. You know, uh, all these cops need to be alert for terror. And granted, you know, some of that made some sense, given you know, that we had some new challenges, you know, but I think like really hyped up, you know, people's perception of, of what cops should be doing and of course cops own perception of what they should be doing 
and a lot of the training then became the sort of sense of like there's a war going on and, and cops are part of this war and you know whether it's terrorism or just regular you know uh criminals with guns or, or whatever else and every time you step out in the street there's guns everywhere everybody's a suspect you need to be ready to you know yeah there really was this training was sort of like more much more aggressive you know for training to be much more aggressive and i think now 20 years down we're sort of dealing with some of the consequences of that sort of overly aggressive you know um policing so even though you know i, crit I criticize progressives as sort of having a false narrative around sort of like some of the race issues around policing they're not wrong in a broader sense in the, of this of this the sense of like police officers are oftentimes ill-equipped in their training to deal with you know a psychotic individual who's having a crisis you know mm -hmm. there's a one case of you know and, and it did happen to be a you know, an african-american gentleman but there was a, a fellow i can't remember his name uh i bad at names as i mentioned uh who had like it was in a drive-through lane i think it was in atlanta and he fell asleep you know, and uh, and basically what broke down is the cop showed up and said, you know, you can't park your car, you know, and go to bed in a drive-through lane at a restaurant, you know, and then presumably this gentleman was mentally ill, so he resisted the officers. I think he grabbed one of their tasers or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. so he actively resisted the officers, you know, which you know, granted, is a good way to get shot, you know, whether you're white or black or any or male or female, you know, uh -huh. uh, that's not. Uh, that shouldn't be a controversial to say you know we should try to convince people not to resist police officers but but of course if you have schizophrenia right you know it's hard not to you don't know what's going on necessarily um and i think the officers in this case you know i don't know specifically what their training was like just to be very clear you know but i think this is kind of the problem with police training in general is officers don't really know how to you approach this individual who may be unable to respond to police requests mm. Um, you know, for the average individual, you start shouting at me and waving a gun in my face, I'll, I'll do what you want. I'll yeah, do what you, want. Yeah. you know, so for 95% of people, that really hyper aggressive approach can work. It's the 5% who, or well, not 5%, it's really like less than 1% who has schizophrenia or psychosis, who th they're going to escalate in that situation. Mm -hmm. So, how do you train police officers to identify, okay, this guy parked and went to bed in a drive through He might have mental illness. Uh -huh. um, you know, uh, that's not normal. So, how can we approach this guy? and just keep it smooth and calm. We don't want to start waving guns in his face or threatening the, you know, yeah. um, but how can we get him one to move his vehicle um, and two, maybe get him the help, you know, that he needs. And that's a whole other issue about mental health services in the United States. But mm. uh, so maybe there isn't a way to do that, you know, but, but, you know, then that's, I don't, that's where I think police officers are not on average terribly well equipped with their training they've been trained to approach everything hyper aggressive mm. and that works in a lot of situations but it doesn't work in that situation you know so i yeah. think that's why people are sort of saying we should bring social workers in because social workers will be better able to deal with this is a nuisance call this guy's not threatening anybody can we just bring in someone who can talk to this dude and see if he needs some help make uh -huh. sure he's not gonna flip out you know this kind of situation which maybe cops aren't terribly well equipped to do that now you actually could train cops to do that uh, but that just hasn't been where the training has been in the last couple of decades, unfortunately. There, again, back tw 20 years ago, there were some initiatives heading towards that. Mm. kind of went away after 9-11. Mm. Um, you might not have a whole lot to say about this, but I believe with that recent shooting uh, that just took place the other day mm -hmm. uh, there in New York, I believe that the, the young man had been evaluated prior. Yeah. Um, and 
he was evaluated and I guess passed and, but he was still on the radar, but he's still. Um, so what, what do you have to say about for people who want to commit mass violence, but are able to pass a psychological examination? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, you know, so you end up with these kind of questions about constitutional rights and, and you know, and, and obviously this the shooting in Buffalo just happened a couple of days ago. So the information at this point is going to be pretty unreliable. It's uh -huh. going to take us a while for you to sort it out. You know, and I've, I've kind of followed it, but I haven't followed it super, super deeply. So I don't want to speak out of turn okay. about this particular individual too much. Yeah. Uh, but but in general, yeah, I mean, you know, the criteria for getting a far, this is a whole the debate about gun control, right? You know, that. <laughs> uh the criteria for getting a firearm in the united states is very low right you know mm -hmm. and there are situations where you know you can be red flagged and you know um or if you're a previous felon or, or whatever else you know if you've been involved in domestic but there's a few situations where you can red flag people mm -hmm. um for background checks um you know and that sort of situation but the reality is is actually it is quite easy you know but mm -hmm. you get into this kind of question right this is i mean i, I see both as i make everybody pissed off when i say i see both sides you know yeah. i see both sides of this sort of thing and that you kind of get into this weird like minority report sort of issue it's like you know can you evaluate people and predict their future behavior you know and you know can you do a psychological evaluation and basically say mm, yeah i don't know this person's like you know if you're familiar with the mmpi like they're <laughs> they're four and nine right the the antisocial and the impulsivity are are kind of high and this person <laughs> maybe this isn't the sort of person you want to have a, a have a firearm because they're going to get angry and impulsively whip it out you know yeah um I mean, I, I'm 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 actually kind of okay with that, you know, in the sense of I I, I would probably, you know, uh, I'm, I I would probably support something that would require some kind of evaluation, mm. you know, um, but I also understand the sort of the right, you know, when they talk about like is it, it is the Second Amendment, it's a constitutional right, it's in there for a reason. Uh -huh. It is the sort of situation I can see where it could be very easily abused by the government because you know where's the cutoff you know even if you talk about people who are you know again inside baseball high four nine but you know are basically anti-social you know impulsive individuals there's a bazillion of them they're everywhere <laughs> they're in academia i can tell you they're in academia they're uh -huh. humanities professors you know they love uh -huh. to have that profile um that are otherwise law abiding citizens you know so you're going to take someone who's never done anything wrong it just has a, a you know a, a nasty jerk personality and you're going to deprive them of their constitutional right i mean i mm -hmm. get it it makes me a little nervous <laughs> I, I hear what they're saying you know on the, yeah. it's, it's a tough issue right you know yeah. so and what people will point to is you know well, because the left will say well we don't need these firearms anymore and people on the right will say well look at ukraine right now <laughs> the reason why the the russians have having a tough time in ukraine everybody's got an ak-47 over there you know mm. so they're shooting at them from windows and stuff you know <laughs> um all right I mean, yeah i get your point i don't think canada's going to invade us anytime soon but you know but but i get it i get yeah. their argument you know so um with a lot of these things we're talking about gun control or of course abortions in the in the news with roe v wade or the whole JK Rowling versus trans activists, all these like really weird, like culture war things. I mean, the thing that strikes me when I think of it is if you could, like, could find 10 rational people on either side of this, uh -huh. put them in 
you know, feed them and water them, but otherwise it'd be like, uh, you know, was it the, the conclave in Rome when they elect a new Pope, you know, they have to put the smoke up through the chimney when they come to a, you know, I, I think you could, most of these issues, you could find compromises, you know, yeah. uh, if you have people who are willing to, to work it through in a database, you know, sort of way. I mean, there's gotta be some sort of meaningful compromise where, all right, maybe some kind of test for people to, you know, own a firearm, that it'll be a big one, you uh-huh. know, but it should be something, you know, <laughs> um, uh, just like we have for motor vehicles. Of course, that's not technically, it's not a constant. There's no like, you know, amendment in the constitution for cars, you know, <laughs> so fair enough. It's not a one-to-one, con- you know, uh, contrast. Yeah. Um, same thing with like trans rights. I mean, there's got to be some sort of, you know, I understand it's a murky issue, you know, um, or, you know, I don't know. I mean, with the, like the trans women in sports thing, I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. I mean, cause obviously it's, it's a sticky issue in terms of, you know, I get it. People are going to be disappointed one way or the other, you know, so how do you figure out some sort of way of working this out in a sensible way? But the problem is that all the, the, the narrative around all these issues is sort of the space is occupied. People have very extreme views on either end. So uh-huh. look at like I've been sort of involved in the debates about like critical race theory in schools, you know. Uh-huh. And so you have on the left, people will have this narrative that's really weird. It basically goes to effective, and I am straw manning a little bit, you know, but in fairness, but like we're not teaching CRT in schools, but if we are, it's really good. Uh-huh. You know, it's kind of the narrative that's coming across. It's like, what? <laughs> it sounds so dishonest. And it is because people are using CRT in schools. They absolutely are. It's anecdotal. We don't know how prevalent it is, you know, uh-huh. so I would like to see more data on it. But this idea that we'd have never, it has no influence. No, of course it, of course there are schools that are there. You can look at people in the, the teachers unions advocating for more CRT. Yeah. yeah. Well documented that CRT is influencing at least some schools, you know, um, without hard numbers about how prevalent it is. And then, so you have those people that are just like, come on, just, just say it, you know, <laughs> Or acknowledge there are at least a few incidences of what schools have done that they've done horrible things that are probably harmful to kids. You know, um, there was one example of like a school that told a biracial kid that one of his parents probably was abusing the other one because one was white and one was black or something like that. Like, like I mean, we can all agree that's bad, right? Yeah. I mean, you be able to say like, like these things, maybe they're anecdotal, maybe they're rare, but schools should not do this, right? You know. Uh, but they can't. They just can't. They just can't say that. You know, it's all like it's the Fox News effect. There's actually a Fox News fallacy. I don't know if you've heard of that. Like people on the left assume that if something is on Fox News, that it must be false. Uh, uh-huh. um, but then you have people on the right. It's like, let's ban everything. <laughs> <laughs> we'll ban Martin Luther King, you know, we'll talk, books about pregnancy horses. I, you know, it's just like, oh, my God, this whole debate is so irrational. Like people on both sides have lost mm-hmm. their minds. And it's, it's funny to watch some of these things like, you know, because I live in Florida and we have this DeSantis and the oh, yeah. parental rights and education bill. Um, and just, I mean, so I've read it, you know, and I, I, I mean, there are reasonable critiques of it. I don't think it's the, the you know, I, I think it's addressing at least anecdotally a real problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know that its approach to addressing it is is highly effective. And mm-hmm. I think there are legitimate concerns where the some of the vagueness, it doesn't say you can't say gay, but you know, it, it, it I, I can understand where teacher will be like, I don't know, can I t- talk about going mm-hmm. with my mm-hmm. husband to kayaking over the weekend? It doesn't really, it's more or less vague, you know, which is chilling, right? So it's a legitimate free speech issue still, that yeah. something is un, unclear, it still can chill speech, you know, uh, it doesn't say you can't talk about your husband, you know, but, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't say you can either. So that's why it's, <laughs> that's why it's, that's why it's vague. 
you know, um, you know, so you get, you know, but you get this like back and forth with Disney getting involved and like, you know, the New York Times will say like Disney employees are in an uproar over this. And you look at how many people protest. It was like 60 you know, <laughs> in Burbank, you know, so obviously there's not a consensus among, you know, and, and it's just both sides will go back and forth. And then like the governor of Texas will send like the Department of, I don't know, uh, of corrections or not, not the Department of Corrections, but anyway, whoever it is, uh, I think it's like child protective services after like kids who are trans and their parents, mm. if they're, you know, just, people just lost their minds. And, mm. and it's, it's interesting to watch like how one side will do something crazy. So like, like there have been anecdotes and so I'm trying to be clear that where some schools have allowed books in that are pretty close to porn uh-huh. uh, and mostly high schools, but still <laughs> <laughs> that are pretty bad. I mean, I would, even as a pretty, you know, absolute free speech defender, like, no, I, I get why parents would not like this. Yeah, I get it. Uh, it's not just that they're talking about like gay couples or whatever. Like, like someone's giving another person a blowjob in a picture, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I hope that's okay to say in your. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I get it. I get why this probably shouldn't be in schools. And then, like, you know, the I don't know. Texas will like ban Martin Luther King or something. Like, oh my God! Like, like each side just gets. Mm. Like or the groomer thing, you know, on, uh-huh. on the right. It's like, come on. I mean, teachers are making some bad decisions. I, I I'm with you, but pedophile. They're all pedophiles now. Yeah. That, that, that's unhinged. Um, and yeah. it's just fascinating to watch, like the sink to the bottom, and how each side just gets nuttier and nuttier. And the problem for progressives, and as someone like myself who mostly would like to live in the progressive world, uh-huh. um, is that crazy is the right's home turf. And so mm-hmm. we're now seeing the first time really in my life. Now, people, when I say this, some people say, well, what about like in the 2000s, there were like these anti-gay amendments. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that, occasionally the right has, you know, managed to sort of whip up some support for some, I think, pretty crazy stuff. But yeah. um, but I've never really seen the right win culture war stuff before. And they are now. Uh-huh. I mean, like, like I, I kind of agree with some of the stuff that they're saying. Like the left is really blowing it. <laughs> you know, they really... <laughs> In this really extreme illiberal they're not concerned about free speech anymore they're not concerned about due process anymore they sound a lot like they're right mm. you know and it's like i don't know i mean <sighs> if that's it then you know if you're saying you want like a book with a blowjob in high schools i, I don't know if i'm with you on this one you know mm-hmm. I, I you know i don't want this like censorship regime either but you know i, I i'm i'm sort of stuck in, I, <laughs> I normally would have been on your side uh-huh. <laughs> i don't know <laughs> I've heard of people say, I didn't leave the left, the left left me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was that Elon Musk sent that cartoon out, you know, that was sort of like shows like the left getting further and further left. But uh, I mean, in fairness, the right has gotten further and further right too. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I think that's why people fairly criticize that particular cartoon. Yeah. The right is way right of what, uh-huh. you know, like Reagan, you know, <laughs> or George W., uh, George H.W. Bush at very mm-hmm. least, you know. Uh, so there definitely has been this rightward lurch on on the right, but uh, but the sensible th- again, I always think in terms of strategy. I mean, the sensible thing on the left would have been to stay in your ground, reinforce your values around free speech, which were historically a left issue, and due process. You know, as part of the interest in criminal justice reform was due process. You know, yeah. uh, whereas the right wants to throw everybody in prison. Um, you know, stick to those. Yeah, but no, eh, eh, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> Don't do free speech anymore. Free speech is harmful. It's white supremacy. No, it's not. No, it is not. Free speech benefits minority communities 
however you define minority, more than anybody else. And if you want to think about, like, if you're endorsing the end of free speech or restrictions on free speech, look who's about to take charge in 2022 and 2024, most likely. You know, if you want to really set that precedent of arguing that free speech is bad just before your opponents come into power, that's stupid. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to sound like Bill Maher now. <laughs> really stupid strategy, you know. Yeah. Unbelievable that people on the left have fallen for this stuff. But anyway, it's uh, very it. interesting. <laughs> so take a turn. So you have authored a few books, both fiction and nonfiction. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was did you did you start off self-publishing? Did you get a publisher? What was that like? No, I got I got real publishers, which is like super hard to do, uh, unfortunately. I mean, to this point, I'm I'm thinking like maybe I should self-publish. It'd be so much oh. easier um, and such. But no, I did the whole thing. Got an agent in. Um, you know, uh, pitch these these books to you know real. Um, pub they're all smaller publishers, so they're not like you know Random House or Scholastic yeah. or things like that. But yeah. you know, so I'm still not. I'm chipping away at Stephen King's Empire, but I'm not really there yet. <laughs> um, but uh, no, you know, they're they're all on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, and places like that. So uh, you know, it's it's still the version of being a rock star, right? You know, is. Uh, you know, too lazy really to be a rock star. Um, but I can sit at home and write books. You know, that's true. That's, that doesn't require much physical energy for the most part. And of course, the hope is that people will actually read them. You know, so uh, yeah, what's your yeah. what's what's one of the favorite ones you've written? I, I would say at this point, probably uh, certainly in, in nonfiction would be how madness shaped history. You know, so mm -hmm. it's so I love history. And in another life, I probably would have been a history professor. But um, you know, so basically, it's the intersection of psychology and history, and it makes the argument that people matter kind of a thing because it's been like a trend in history kind of focused on like the environment and resources and viruses and this kind of stuff which is all which all is important but you know mm -hmm. as we can see from like you know the trump presidency for instance or uh, uh zelansky in ukraine right mm -hmm. individuals do sometimes matter you know for the course of history uh, and in this book i prefer to talk more about like the, the crazy people you know, the, like the extreme cases of like people that have screwed things up for their societies in big ways um, due to their mental health problems. Uh, so it was a lot of fun to write. Yeah. I write it to be kind of fun, you know. So it's not, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty well, I, I would like to think it's pretty well sourced, hmm. um, but I write it to have fun and there's lots of jokes in it and this sort of <laughs> stuff. So, you know, if, you, if you're squeamish about like serial murder and then a joke, <laughs> uh, might not be like the best book you know for you uh -huh. if you really are like again need a trigger warning or something like that no nah, this is <laughs> but uh but if you really are having like this morbid you know curiosity and maybe a little bit of a morbid uh sense of humor to go along with it probably is a good is a good match but, but i talk a lot about serious stuff about like you know mental health history mental health systems and all that kind of stuff as well but Okay. I wrap that in with you know a bunch of serial killers and and uh, maniacal despots and you know <laughs> kind of other stuff Caligula you know <laughs> like crazy people from history that like just were horrible horrible human beings so that was that was a lot of fun to write. Yeah, I'll link it in the description. For this Fantastic. video, yeah, yeah, yeah. great. Help help put my kid through college. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, well that's about that's about our time. Um, yeah, it was really it was really interesting. I, I want to thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Oh, this is a lot of fun. I, I, you know, I appreciate you thinking of me and um, this is great being on. Oh, good.